0: It's Andrea.
1: And Ilya. And hello, everyone. We are back from Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. This is Will Be Wild, bonus edition.
0: So, since our podcast first launched, thanks to you, it became the number one podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for coming with us on this journey.
1: We thought that we had wrapped up that journey, but then the Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol announced a slate of hearings for the month of June.
0: When we left you at the end of Episode 8, we were talking about accountability. We were talking about getting the story of January 6 down for history. In the first primetime hearing, Representative Benny Thompson picked up right where we left off, in the middle of the United States Civil War. Back in the 1860s. In
2: 1862, when American citizens had taken up arms against this country, Congress adopted a new oath to help make sure no person who had supported the rebellion could hold a position of public trust. Therefore, congresspersons and United States federal government employees were required for the first time to swear an oath to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That oath was put to test on January 6, 2021.
1: This oath thing really, really resonated with me. In the course of our reporting, I kept hearing, like, interview after interview, people mentioned the oath that they swear, people working at agencies, people in the military— And the point they were making, which I didn't initially grasp, but I see now, is that they swear an oath to support and defend the Constitution. It's not an oath of loyalty to the president, which was Donald Trump's view. That, of course, was severely tested when Trump became the president, because he really thought that everyone in the government should work for him. Now, there is a group of people who saw things basically the way that Trump does and that was people like Jessica Watkins and the other oath keepers who, according to the indictments, allegedly took that oath that they swore. Many of them were in the military or law enforcement as licensed to pick up arms, go to the Capitol, and support their president. It's a twisted interpretation of what was actually intended, but was also enormously powerful.
0: So, one of the things that we want to do is to listen to these hearings and look at these hearings through the lens of the issues and the themes and the people that we've been following. After the break, we're going to tell you our top takeaways from the beginning of the hearings and also five things that we're going to be looking for over the course of all of the testimony and hearings. Since we started unrolling this podcast, we have heard from so many of you on social media, in Apple podcast reviews, or in person. And one of the things that you keep saying to us is you can't believe how much more there was to learn about what happened on January 6th. And watching the first night of the hearings, the primetime hearings, it feels very raw. It feels very emotional. There's a sense of going back to that time right after January 6th when there seemed to be a broader feeling across the country. How could this happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, the tape definitely, the you know, the video that was played, to me, is still incredibly fresh and disturbing, even after spending a year with these facts and a a year really looking at these materials. There are a few things that really jumped out at me from this first hearing. And a lot of the most intriguing elements were not backed up with testimony or evidence, at least not yet. But I want to tick some of those off. We learned from Liz Cheney, the vice chair of the committee, that Trump, in her words, oversaw a sophisticated seven-part plan a plan that was aimed at subverting the election. Likewise, we heard that the White House received warnings that January 6th could be violent. Again, where were the warnings coming from? What did the warnings say? How specific were they? Did the White House do anything in response to those warnings? Were any of them elevated to the president? We don't know. We want to know.
0: You know, it is so interesting to me because in the course of reporting this story, some intelligence officials said to me, especially people around DHS, as much information as DHS was getting about possible plans for violence, there was one entity in Washington that was going to be getting even more information. And that entity was, of course, the White House. And I think one of the things that's going to be showing the the power of this committee and, and their ability to force some people to talk to them is revealing what the White House knew and at what points. And I am really eager to see that.
1: There's one more thing that, um, again, we heard that was not really backed up with a lot of evidence or facts, but that I want to know a lot more about. And that is that multiple members of Congress asked the White House for pardons uh, in connection with what they were doing on January 6th or something perhaps to do with the counting of the electoral vote. They asked for those pardons in the final days of the trump white house i want to know more what was the context for it did the white house entertain the idea of those pardons were there discussions what did they think that they might need pardoning for it didn't happen but i think that that could be hugely indicative of how people understood those events in real time one more thing i just want to point out it's a really good thing that we named this podcast will be wild we've
2: obtained substantial evidence showing that the president's December 19th tweet calling his followers to Washington, D.C. on January 6th energized individuals from the Proud Boys and other extremist groups. In response to the tweet, one member, the president of the Florida chapter, put on social media, the president called us to the Capitol. He wants us to make it wild. The goal was for the Oath Keepers to be called to duty so that they could keep the president in power, although President Trump had just lost the election. What really made me want to come was the fact that, you know, I had supported Trump all that time. Uh, I did believe, you know, that the election was being stolen. um, And Trump asked us to come. He personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And I thought, for everything he's done for us, If this is the only thing he's going to ask of me, I'll do it.
0: This is the thing that really caught my attention. We knew, Ilya, you and I knew from our reporting, from talking to some of the members of the mob who showed up at the Capitol, that that particular tweet was incredibly mobilizing. I mean, from Natalie Jangula to Jessica Watkins to Guy Reffitt to Danny Rodriguez. So... That was known to us and now known to you who are listening. That's one of the things that these hearings are going to do, which is bring them forward. But, you know, in the run up to these hearings, people have been saying to me, what are you looking for? And and I think we understand through our work on this podcast, Trump, without a doubt, tried to... Thwart the will of the people through a whole variety of ways. He pressured his vice president not to certify the votes. He told his attorney general, his acting attorney general, he wanted him to send letters to state legislatures telling them that they shouldn't send up slates of electors to Washington. But we don't know, it's still a really open question to what extent the White House was sort of intentionally and actively involved, if at all, in mobilizing the mob that attacked the Capitol. So when Representative Liz Cheney really strongly hinted that summoning and deploying a mob to D.C., a violent mob, was actually part of Trump's seven-point plan to hold on to power, she described in really vivid detail a scene the night of December 18th, 2020, when this group, including General Michael Flynn... Sydney Powell, who was Trump's former attorney, Rudy Giuliani, another Trump former attorney, people that were really espousing some of the conspiracy theories that we've been speaking about. And they visit the White House. As Cheney describes it, this group, Flynn, Powell, Giuliani, and others, they stay late into the evening at the White House with the president. And now I'm quoting Cheney a little bit. She says they discussed a number of dramatic steps, including having the military seize voting machines and potentially rerun elections. What was so interesting to me, so the regular White House staff is not there. The lawyers are not there. And this is what Cheney says happened next. A little more than an hour after Ms. Powell, Mr. Giuliani, General Flynn, and the others finally left the White House, President Trump sent the tweet on the screen now, telling people to come to Washington on January 6th. Be there, he instructed them. We'll be wild. So there it is.
1: This is tantalizing because Sidney Powell, one of the people in the meeting, according to BuzzFeed's reporting, has been secretly funding the defense of some of the Oath Keepers. So these groups are so, so, so close to the president. There is such a thin membrane between these groups and the president of the United States.
0: You know, when we named our podcast Will Be Wild, I don't think that we understood what was coming, which is that potentially it's a really pivotal Piece of evidence. It may be, and and we don't know this. This is one of the big things I'm going to be watching in the hearings. Was there some kind of plan developed in the hours before Trump sent that tweet that one of the things we need to do to hang on to power is bring this violent mob to Washington? So we certainly know now that. Groups like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, according to the indictments, began planning immediately to attack the Capitol after this tweet came out. But what we still don't know, and what we're really going to be watching these hearings to find out, is the extent to which that was a plan from the White House, or at least something that the president and the people around him knew about. The first night of the hearings, the Select Committee played a video of members of the mob who testified to them, including many people who are proud boys. And they were saying things like, Trump personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And Trump has only asked me for two things. He asked me for my vote and he asked me to come on January 6th. So if you've been listening to this podcast, you know that happened. But the way it was put together with the sequence of events and the timeline and information that the select committee has that, that we don't have, it looks like it's even more significant in the course of events than we'd realized.
1: Right. I mean, it immediately brings to mind Danny Rodriguez, who is accused of assaulting officer Mike Fanone, who we meet in episode five of the podcast, The Tunnel. Um, I'm very encouraged that the committee was speaking with rioters and alleged rioters and and people in the proud boys i think it's a really important part of the puzzle some of that video that they presented to me was among the most interesting pieces of video i learned a lot from the insurrectionists and accused insurrectionists whose lives we examined i think there's a lot more to learn we are going to be back with a second bonus episode after the hearings wrap up we thought we would share a few of the themes that we specifically are going to be looking at informed by our research to make Will Be Wild. So, I don't know, Andrea, do you want to start us off with like a first theme that people should be listening for?
0: One of the things that the committee says it's going to be focused on quite soon is the question of disinformation and whether the White House and Donald Trump were intentionally using disinformation to, as Liz Cheney put it, summon the violent mob to Washington. So we haven't known that. I mean, we've known, obviously, that what happened, we've known that Trump said these things. We know these things were lies. We know from Danny Rodriguez and Chris Krebs and the people that we spoke to in episode six that disinformation without a doubt got people to Washington and activated them and primed them to be violent. But what we don't know is the intentionality there. We don't know whether Trump was just saying the election was stolen from me and these things happen, or whether there was an understanding when he said those things, that violent things were going to happen. You know, one of the things that the committee was able to do is get some of the lower-level but still high-level people in the White House to speak to them under oath and to describe to them scenes in the White House. For example, Liz Cheney says we are going to hear witnesses saying that Trump thought Mike Pence maybe deserved to be hanged for not certifying the vote. The former president of the United States, as we know definitively, wanted his vice president to refuse to honor the will of the voters. And when that vice president, who had been unfailingly loyal for four years, did his own constitutional research and said, no, I don't actually have the power, me one person, to overturn the will of the voters, what the president said, according to this committee, is maybe... He deserved to be hanged. So let that sink in. He's saying his number two, this incredibly loyal person, maybe deserves to die. That in itself is something wild.
1: Yeah, I mean, truly, even if it's a joke, (laughs) what kind of a joke to make?
0: So this is the kind of inside information that I'm going to be watching for as these hearings go on.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a very closely related question around radicalization. So we know how Trump's calls to action functioned uh, with the people who went to D.C. It's Part of what the Will Be Wild tweet is all about. But that's the public facing side of this. There's a private side, which is what did Trump and his allies do privately to activate supporters, get them on the streets, get them angry, get them organized to coordinate, if indeed they did those things? Were there intermediaries, go betweens? Who were they? And why did Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, try to get the president on the phone on the afternoon of January 6th? And why did he think he could do so? Why did he even have an intermediary who he thought could get him in touch with the president? He failed to do that, but it's still a really important data point that he thought that it was possible.
0: Yeah. They did seem to be suggesting that we were going to be getting that information very soon. I mean, you know-
1: I'm I'm a little concerned for the committee for this strategy because I do think they're doing a lot of implication. And if the evidence does not fully support the implications, then they are open to a revisionist history where this is all a bunch of hooey, all a bunch of nothing and insinuation. We know it's not insinuation. The evidence is already extremely strong that the president was campaigning to overturn the election after the election was already lost by him. But I do think there's a little bit of danger there for the committee.
0: I I agree. On the other hand, I think maybe what they're trying to do is define the way that people see what's coming by telling people what to look for. And I guess we're going to we're going to find out how that works out. Another thing that we're looking for, and this is thing three for people who are keeping count, is one of the things that we looked at in our podcast was the hollowing out of government. And people who listen to the episode Homeland know what happened the Department of Homeland Security, where there were so many actings and so many different ways that Donald Trump hollowed out the Department of Homeland Security, pressuring people like Miles Taylor, Elizabeth Newman, Brian Murphy, each in their own ways to resign. And I think that we are going to get a bigger picture of how that process played out at the Justice Department. There were a lot of depositions that came out while we were reporting our podcast, a lot of uh, sworn statements of top level officials in the Trump Justice Department talking about how Trump tried to use the Department of Justice for his own ends to hang on to power. That case has been really clearly made, but it has not been said to a live audience by the former attorney general I told the president there was no evidence of fraud, and he wanted me to go to state legislatures and say there was. And he wanted me to tell them, don't certify the election. So we know that happened, but we haven't heard it. And I think that could be a particularly dramatic day in this testimony.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think listeners to this podcast really understand the way the agencies were hollowed out and decapitated, the way they had actings in charge, but one or two levels below, there were all these unfilled positions or positions filled with lackeys or unqualified people. I can see why the committee might want to focus on Donald Trump himself, but I actually think understanding the mechanisms of government in this way and the way that we have tried to bring over in the podcast could be enormously helpful to the American people. So I hope they do a good job with this. Point four I'm calling the bulwarks. What were the bulwarks that stood or failed? And by the bulwarks, I mean not even so much agencies, but kind of like mega institutions like the military, the business community, really the things that like usually are kind of unshakable. Who was holding the line that day? What were they thinking? How close did they think we were to failing? And to me, the most intriguing Video that was presented on that theme in this first hearing was excerpts from the interview with Joint Chiefs Chairman General Mark Milley, who talked about getting direct orders from Vice President Pence on the 6th. Pence telling him, get the National Guard to the Capitol now oh, my goodness, the drama of that moment. I don't know if it's constitutional for a vice president to give an order like that when a president is not incapacitated or hasn't been removed. Uh, I think that's a sort of interesting constitutional side question. Uh, What's really interesting is why he thought it was necessary and how Millie and Vice President Pence were communicating that day. That's something we certainly could not crack with this podcast. I hope that they tell us a lot more about it in these hearings.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that is a real... Negative image of what happened on June 1st that we were talking about in our War Games episode of Trump wanting Millie to get the military in to suppress peaceful protests in Washington, D.C. And we see the contrast between that and his complete absence on January 6th and the vice president being the one filling that vacuum. So I agree. That is going to be an interesting day of testimony.
1: I guess the last question is what do you do? with a lawless president, right? Our system was not designed for a president who incites insurrection, for a president who treats his civil servants as if their loyalty is to him and not to the constitution. And we heard this again and again throughout the series. And I think a really important thing is looking at that pressure campaign to take public servants right up to the line of what they will do. And what we're going to do about that in the future, because my guess is this is not the last time that that's going to happen in our country. You know, one fragment of evidence of this that that, that was presented in the first hearing that was really dramatic was a text exchange between Sean Hannity, the Fox host, and Kaylee McEnany from the White House press office, basically kind of saying, yeah, we got to get the, get the president under control here, but nobody knows how to do it.
0: One of the things that both Representative Cheney and Representative Thompson said was that the last night of the hearing is going to be a narration from inside the White House, from people who are working inside the White House, of what happened on January 6th. That question of how people tried to cope in real time with a lawless president, I think is going to be immensely interesting. But, you know, the other thing about about that is, and I just, I feel like it's, you know, I cannot say this enough. What we already know, I mean, even what we saw on January 6, just on the day itself of what Trump did and didn't do was so shocking. And Ilya, you and I have been on this reporting journey and we've looked at so many hearings and we've talked to so many people and we've read through so many documents. And the shock only deepens. The understanding of the ways in which really there was an attempted coup. I mean, With all of the knowledge we have, with everything that has played out in plain sight, which is extremely shocking and alarming in and of itself, we still do not have a good window into what happened in the White House in those seven hours when President Trump's—former President Trump's schedules are silent. And who said what to whom, what the president said— I don't think it's something that will fundamentally change our understanding of what happened, but it will, I think, give us real insight into what his intent was, what his state of mind was, and will be potentially a roadmap for accountability.
1: All right, you guys. This is our little roadmap for the select committee hearings unfolding over the month of June. I hope you watch. I think they're going to be really interesting. I think the best way to consume them is just to watch them. And unlike a lot of congressional hearings, they are very tight. uh, So you can make time in your life to watch them. We're going to see you again at the end of the month when the hearings are complete. So remember to refresh your feeds and see you guys soon.
0: Wild is a production of Pineapple Street Studios, Wondery, and Amazon Music. It's hosted by me, Andrea Bernstein, and Ilya Maritz. Our senior producer is Kat Aaron. Our associate producer is Marie-Alexa Cavanaugh. Our editors are Maddie Sprunkheiser and Joel Lovell. Our sound designer is Hannes Brown, who also composed the original music. Pineapple's head of engineering is Raj Makija.
1: Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Legal review also provided by Katie Ali Mohammadi Crown and Sarah Schwarzman at Donaldson Califf Perez. Jenna weiss and Max Linsky are the executive producers of Pineapple Street, with support on Will Be Wild from Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our managing producer is Candace manriquez Wren. senior producer is Eliza Mills, and executive producers are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty.